Hi, I'm Bryn Thompson. This is the Coburn Ventures Podcast. It's for clients, investors, our community of industry leaders, fellows, and friends. This is a group that loves the craft of investing, studies change, is dedicated to business analysis, and all that's behind the scenes of that work. I hope you enjoy it. For the next few episodes, we are going to be talking about rogue waves, the unpredictable disruptions brought by the quantum changes in connectivity and digital transformation. As investors, we hope to understand which companies and sectors will be highly adaptable in this age, and even which companies and sectors might help us through it, as the digital fairing companies did in the first portion of the digital revolution helping us migrate from one world to another. In the next few episodes, we'll dive deeper into what rogue waves are, and importantly, along with our friends, we will start developing a toolkit for increased understanding of how this will all relate to our investments and what new tools we may want. Our goal, to ride the waves. So let's get going. works at high levels with marketing and executive teams and has a seat observing how these teams adapt in interesting times and to new challenges. So we were very happy to dig in with him on the topic of adaptation, generally speaking. But what this conversation then revealed were some major learnings regarding teams and divisions that have inflated and perhaps lost their purpose, but not their budget. What a helpful thing for an investor to be able to ferret out. Rob also offers us a fascinating hack from a nurse handling decision-making in the hospital system and a couple great questions for management. Let's jump in. We've been talking for a long time about um, a couple of words over the last few years, resilience, adaptability, and we've also been talking for a long time Pip and I about having Rob Rose on this podcast. And we thought, what greater excuse to mesh together some abstract concepts and a great friend. And so I want to introduce the ideas we're talking about today and introduce Rob Rose. Fantastic. The cool thing is Rob has like three minutes of warning on what the heck we're talking about. And he's the perfect mind to be able to do that at various gatherings, roadmakers or Sundance or wherever we are. At the end, I'll just go, Rob, can you complete this? And like he comes up with cool stuff. I'm, 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 I'm nothing if not adaptable. <laughs> We've been talking about resilience and adaptability, and I'm distinguishing between those two things. I had a, a call with um, an investor friend about a month ago, and he said, you know, I think of resilience sort of as melody, he's, he's big into music. I don't know music, Rob does know music. But he said, resilience is like a melody. A song has to have a melody. And resilience means you're still alive or you're still something, you're existing. But we really are interested in humans and adaptability, which he was connecting with harmony in music. Like we seek harmony as humans, like merely surviving just doesn't feel like enough. And that's why ESG sometimes doesn't land right because sustainability, as I often say, if 
Rob asked me about my marriage with Kelly of 31 years and how would I describe it? And I said, it's been really sustainable. He'd, you know, probably cry <laughs> because that's not enough for us humans. So I loved how that particular um, investor used music, said resilience is, is, is critical and it's key in March of 2020 that we were talking about resilience and no wonder why it became so popular. But here we are, we're ready to make money and like thrive again, even though there's so much uncertainty. <clears throat> so well, that's it, right? Set, now the skill set is, can we, <clears throat> we assume that we're resilient. Can we adapt? So Rob, with that completely vague opening, what comes to your mind? Well, it's, I mean, I, I love that metaphor, first of all, you know, the idea of, of melody versus harmony, you know, because there's that wonderful Joseph Campbell quote, uh, make your heartbeat match the heartbeat of the universe, right? Which is really how we want to live our lives, where we want to make our heartbeat match what we're seeing out in the world and, and, and you know, and find the, the patterns that we want to see out in the world and really adapt to those new situations. And what has been, you know, interesting, I think, around the last two years as we've come out of this is this, yes, everybody's talking about resilience here. And what they almost always mean is, okay, now it's time to get back to regularly scheduled programming, right? Now it's time to get back to certainty. The thing, you know, to bounce back, we want to bounce back. And what, what we're really asking, at least, you know, when I talk to businesses are, we don't necessarily want to bounce back. We want to bounce forward. And, and into something that is new. So it's, it, it's weird because you ask business leaders about change and they say, great, yes, we're absolutely changing. And the next question out of our mouth is, what are you changing into? And instead, the, I think the better answer is, no, 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 we're just building to change, no matter what that change may be. Too often I've heard people talk about 2019 over the last like three weeks, like not, not exactly, but translated, are we, is it, are we back to 2019? And when I hear that, I go, wow, that's, that's really going to get people in trouble because so much has changed that we'll never go back to 2019, which is totally cool by me. There's a lot of uncertainty. And how do you mesh up that heartbeat? comment from Joseph Campbell, how do you mesh up so your heartbeat can change as the heartbeat of the world is changing, which has happened pretty quickly. I don't think anyone's denying that. I think that's what we're trying to attend to. Like, can we go back? Can we stop? Can we go, like, what is this? I, I saw this quote the other day that I really liked from a woman named Paula Darcy. To awaken is not about staying in the same place and seeing from there new vistas nor is it about having enlightened insights or realizing new thoughts or ideas. To awaken is to find myself in a new vista, looking back at my former life with an entirely new set of eyes. It is literally to be changed. The spirit within becomes my sight. It's almost like we have to embrace it. This is really different. And do we have skills to adapt, not what is the specifics of the adaptation? It's, I, I love that. The new eyes part of that, especially because that's, that's, so one of the, the things that I've found really helpful 
in this, you know, sort of distinguishing between this resilience and adaptability idea and getting business leaders out of this idea of, okay, we need to bounce back because by the way, nobody in 2019 was going, gosh, really, can we get back to 2017? You know, can we get back to 20? I mean, I think we'd all like to forget 2016, but you know, the, the, all of those things together, I've found there's a wonderful technique. Um, it was invented by a nurse of all people, and they were trying to figure out how to uh, really change the idea of, of, of the adapting the hospital to new types of techniques. And it was three questions. It's basically what, so what, and now what? And the what is what happened? What, you know, what happened? We can address what happened. And then the so what is what have we learned about ourselves during this what happened period? And then the now what isn't trying to look around corners or predict the future. It's how am I going to change for better outcomes in order to manage the so what? And it's if... So it's asking ourselves a very introspective question, whether we're asking our company or our, or our team or ourselves, how are we going to look at the world through new eyes based on what and so what? It's like a great exercise to firmly place yourself as much as we can in reality. And then exactly. work from there. And the new reality, right? And the, the new and reality. The, you know, whether it's the next normal, the new normal or whatever it is. It's addressing the fact that it's not 2019 anymore and shouldn't be 2019 anymore because it never was going to be 2019 anymore. And so how do we actually reflect the what, whatever happened, and how do we actually change based on that? And what are the implications of all those things? That, to me, when those answers start to come, it starts to imply either we're adaptable or we're not. Right, we're, we're we have adapted to this or 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 not, and and it it may be okay that we haven't yet. It may be you know that we've recognized that we're you know we're still in a work in progress here in terms of getting into something where we feel even slightly comfortable in this new next normal whatever it is. But it may also be that we are simply using the what and the so what to prepare ourselves for the next, you know, because guess what, there's going to be a next what, and there's going to be a next so what, and it's, it's a constant iteration and adaptability and evolution into, you know, in, it, that's the strength, that's the muscle, it's not into what, it's just, we, we just need to be able to change, full stop, period. I was thinking about um, one of the sessions Brynn and I had with Lisa Baird, whom many, many, many of you know, and the questions they ask in executive search today. And they said like, well, the resume is like turned to hash. We don't need, that doesn't help us much. And, and we said like, well, what type of questions will you ask someone who's, and she said, we want to understand a period where they significantly struggled and how they got out of it. Mm. Because that will tell us the abstracts. And if someone can't think of something they've struggled with, it's definitely not a good person to necessarily hire. But I just thought also, Rob, maybe we've been sort of joking ourselves for the last 50 years or 100 years or who knows how long as humans, that things were controlled enough and segmented enough that I could fire, find a CEO 
who's already run retail and bring them over to this other space. And it would be like kind of certain that they did this and now they can do this. And that that was kind of a false facade always that the adaptability had to be much more inventive, creative, made up on the fly. That's always been, and maybe we're just kind of because of a rush of circumstances over the past 10 years, now the meme is moving towards uncertainty, towards adaptability, and it's not just, I ran this and I can run that. What do you think? Are we changing it's, or is the situation changing? I think it's both. I think, you know, I think the, the, the interesting thing about your, your comment there is, is how much it has to do, I think, with uh, algorithmic change versus, you know, uh, creative change. And, and we've been wrapped around the axle for the last really, you know, let's call it 10 years, maybe even 20 years around this idea of algorithmic change, right? Like all we have to do is figure out what the right algorithm is and it will, uh, it will apply to anything, right? It'll apply to this, it'll apply to that. And the creative part of that, and this is especially true in my field, which is of course marketing, but, but you know, the marketers have been trying to you know, press the science button of marketing for the last 20 years using digital and technology and, you know, and build in the sort of algorithm of you know, do this and get that. And it just doesn't work. And you think you can apply that to some big business, you know, even at the CMO or CEO level. And of course it doesn't work. And what gets lost in that is the beauty and the art of the uncertainty. And that's the, you know, I mean, I know the street hates uncertainty above everything else, but there is a beauty to that, which is, you know, the, sometimes the answer is, we don't know how this is gonna turn out. We have no idea. And that's a good decision. We, um, I don't know, it was probably 15 years ago, we wrote a piece of um, how to, I think it was something Bryn like, how do we decide how we buy things or something like that? And we kind of pulled from Mike Stick where the old Procter and Gamble mode was like an algorithm. You could figure out your, your, your sales and you could figure out your capacity, um, your CapEx by the factory. And that like, you could kind of have, if you're in the right place, you could have like some sense of connection to that because you knew people were gonna find out about the thing through one of four channels, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the way that people even find out about things or where they get into the sales process or funnel and someone can come at the end and steal like that, your car sale or whatever it is, or you're going to a restaurant, that creates much more complexity, which may be that thing that art that you said is so fun in the uncertainty of business, having to weave through that with all your creativity and imagination, all those types of things. Yeah, it's that, it's the, it's the introduction of, I mean, it's, I mean, not to get too meta here, but it, it is the, it's the introduction of chaos, right? I mean, it is, you just don't know that all of a sudden you're, you're, you are um, doing amazingly well. You've got predictability. Your supply chain is doing fantastically. You can predict the number of sales and where things are going. All of a sudden COVID hits and China shuts down the entire country and your supply chain goes to zero. And that predictability went out the window. It's not that the customer's demand went out the window. It's just that your ability to serve it at, at went out the window. You never know what's going to happen. So the question is then, how do you evolve into that world? And you know, you look at a company like Amazon that that completely, you know, maybe you know, 
prepared for this better, evolved for this better, you know, whatever it is by basically introducing their own distribution and their own supply chain and, and, and really were able to adapt to this change a lot better. And then you look at others that just weren't, that just weren't, you know, that just aren't able to evolve in this. And you see that certainly at the tectonic scale, because that's what gets reported. But then, you know, if you take that all the way down to the micro scale, even something as simple as, you know, I was working with one client where the CEO hadn't, they hadn't thought about how to adapt to a world where nobody could go into the big glass box that they all you know, conglomerated in every morning and, and spent five days a week. When everybody was at home, it was like it completely paralyzed the business because they just had no way to change. They had no way to adapt to it. Rob, can you say a little bit more on that when you're communicating with your clients or, you know, just different observations you're making? What are some tells that a group may be just way at the beginning of that, wait, what happened stage? <laughs> what do you see? The, the, the biggest tell for me is when I go in and, and most of my work is talking with CMOs, marketing leaders in these larger organizations. And the biggest tell for me is when they're trying, you've got a, a, a marketing leader, uh, and this is especially true, not necessarily at the CMO level, but at the secondary level. So, you know, product marketing VPs or those sort of that secondary tier of, of leadership of, of teams. And what they're doing is, is using this time to figure out and try and predict the future. And so they're saying, this is what I believe the future is going to be. And they start drawing lines in the sand and building sandboxes and building things around that. So thus, this is what we should change into. And they're making a big bet, basically based on their prediction. The worst is when you talk to the different VPs across the different groups, and they all have different predictions, right? They all have sort of, you know, one has this and one has that, and when the other has this, and you sort of put all that together and you go, hey guys, can you just look at your little, your hand of cards here and go, somebody's wrong. So somebody's going to be wrong here. Who's it going to be? Why are we even trying to predict the future instead of trying to work on ourselves? What, you know, in, in other words, what if none of this happened? And, 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 or what if all of this happened? What would you do? And it's, and it's changing that mindset to think about how do we basically prepare for change rather than trying to build into some fanciful prediction, seeing around corners, you know, all of those kinds of things. Maybe I'll add in, uh, I'm going to share th four questions from Mike Stick and see if one of these connects with you. These are questions about adaptation that he thinks about, just like top of mind from him. Has the company routinized the exploration of future industry change from a customer back perspective? Does the company have long-term venture relationships that provide relevant innovation frameworks, spaces, and pilots with startups? Does the company know how to activate on priority innovations and how to integrate them into existing products slash service offerings? And number four, does the company suitably prioritize sales and customer teams input in times of atrophy slash disruption? The third one is the one that resonates with me the most, which is, is the, you know, does the company have um, the ability to innovate during a crisis, basically? Does it, you know, in other words, are you, is the muscle built enough where 
independent of what the crisis is, you know, because crisis is simply change. Um, you know, there's that, I, I think it's a Chinese proverb, you know, crisis is simply change riding the dangerous wind. And it's how do you have the muscle ability and coordination? Because the key thing about innovation at the company level is coordinate. How am I coordinating with my, with, with my teams, my people, my ideas? And so do you have that structure built in so that you can actually take advantage? There was a wonderful Harvard Business Review article that talked about the things that companies do during these crises that, you know, they, they sort of gave them archetypes, right? They said, you know, there's the, 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 I can't remember exactly what they were, but it was sort of, there's one that takes advantage, right? That in other words, they, they sort of pounce on this idea and they, you know, they buy up toilet paper and they buy up, you know, things to resell on the secondary market and they take advantage of the situation. And then there's those who sort of look, reflect, change, make all sorts of internal changes. And then there's those that sort of go and hide and basically withdraw and, and pull back. And it's, and it's not that one of these, either of those three are bad. It's when the business isn't coordinated with those three and, and different parts of the business start doing that. That's when you really lose the ability to innovate during a crisis. I say it's sort of like a fight or a flight or a freeze type of reaction response. Right. And I was thinking about, I, I wrote a couple questions around the pandemic. And one of them in, in connection with relationships, <clears throat> like we always talk in those moments of crisis is that's an opportunity for trust building, relationship building. And so I, I sort of threw something in. Do you think during the, the pandemic allowed your company a practical once in a decade opportunity to become closer with all of your constituents and if so, how did you make that assessment and how did you make it happen? As well as, do you have one or two big regrets regarding your pandemic reaction with regard to that opportunity to have advanced multi-stakeholder relationships? Like, and if a company says, I, we have no regrets, I'd say they're probably like not awake in some sense. There's um, Buddhist teachers who say they actually look forward to trouble because it's the meat and potatoes of advancement. Yeah. And if you're not just trying to get through the world and like have the spreadsheet map up to like the certainty to map up to the quarterly sales, then you actually go, oh my God, this is the best thing happened. Bring on more trouble. Rob, I want to go back to that point you were making on coordination. We were talking with Steve Crandall about this as well. He said one of the most underestimated facets of a great scientific or research organization is the management of it not just the can you innovate it's it there has to be the management of it to then pull that out um to to make it effective in the world or to make it commercial whatever the goal is what else do you see about that in terms of you know when you're working with the, your organizations and teams is there something about that coordination that is evident to you right away a hundred percent, a hundred percent. It's, you know, one of the little tweetable things that gets attributed to me every now and again is, is as I say, 90% of marketing strategy has nothing to do with content or creative. It is all about communication. And, and this, the one thing, you know, when I go into, you know, it used to be back in the day, in my early days of marketing that you go in and marketing was siloed off from the rest of the organization, right? Nobody in sales liked to talk to you. Know, marketing was the, 
people who figured out Pantone colors and Super Bowl ads, right? And you know, so sales didn't want to talk to marketing. Legal certainly didn't want to talk to marketing. IT people didn't want to talk to marketing. Marketing was sort of off on its own. And now the challenge is, of course, that marketing is siloed even from itself. And so, so you know, you go in today and you talk to one of the biggest tells of a bigger company these days about their ability to change and innovate in this space is I'll go in and ask the CMO, show me your integrated marketing plan. This would be something that I had to do quite literally to graduate, you know, back in the day is to put together an integrated marketing plan, but they don't have them. They just don't. Individual product teams have plans. Individual brand teams have plans. Individual content teams have plans. They all have their plans, but none of them are integrated into a rolled up communication strategy where everybody knows it is not uncommon for groups within marketing to hear about campaigns and things that the business is doing when they hit the press release or when they hit the public website. And that lack of internal coordination and communication is the telltale sign of a dysfunctional marketing department. Why do you think it evolved that way? Or, and is, because it, is, we, it, is it more common to have, it, it sounds like it's becoming more and more common to have it be that fragmented. Is that accurate? Or? It is. It is. It is more common to have that fragmented, though there is a recognition, I would say, these days it, that it, that it is fragmented. Right? There is a there is a recognition. You know, if you look at industry analysts, sort of, you know, the their CMO studies that they would will do every year, there is a recognition that there is a silo problem. That you know, there is a coordination problem, but not many businesses are doing a lot about it. Um, the The reason is is because for whatever reason, marketing through the 20 years, really since the advent of internet, digital, and, and sort of the explosion of channels that they have to manage, has become uh, so complex that they, they, they began to segment themselves across those channels rather than by the content or the communication that they want to create. In other words, we created a demand gen team that all they focus on is that early part of the customer's journey, right? Then we created a sales enablement team that they're all, you know, we created a brand team and then we create, so we created by an internal looking out, was it, I think it was Steve Sanoski from uh, Microsoft who once said, don't ship the org chart. And we have definitely shipped the org chart when it comes to marketing. We have built from the inside looking out. And that idea of how often communication, whether wherever it is in the system, gets underrepresented. And in this case, almost the same as like a hospital. And Brynn and I were talking about generalists versus specialists before we got on. Like mm -hmm. this, the complexity leads to a reaction of specialty. And like with the human body, but the specialty needs to have the context of the whole. So our friend Pam is a orthopedic hand surgeon for pediatrics, yep. but the, pretend, the amount of time she spends on hand things is like 15% because they call her in because she understands the whole of the thing. So she's working on everything, even though she's called a pediatric hand surgeon. It's yep. just a name, but she has to understand what happens here versus a leg versus like the whole of the body. And here with marketing gone bad is like, no, I just do my part. And I'm not sure how that and, and their management above doesn't bring it all together.
a final question that I do have on my mind is how with, with marketing organizations behaving that way, how might that look on the outside? Um, and how, what do you think that's going to, how is it going to play out? It sounds like that there are some things that are messy and companies are going to really miss their customer completely, um, may become quite tone deaf, you know, how does it play out? Um, and what would you suggest for an organization to, you know, right size itself or not right size, but, um, you know, get back to its base, so to speak. Yeah. It, from the outside looking in what it typically looks like, and it can be, you know, it can be hard to spot only because it, it, it doesn't always feel as obvious as you think it might. In other words, the, the messaging may be consistent, right? There are TV ads and the website and all those things may, may match up pretty well because honestly, those things don't change very much. But what does change is that coordination. So what I often look for is, is the timing against where I would be as a customer. Is it a coordinated effort? Great example of this are the airlines, right? And I happen to know that airlines right now are in a, you know, you know, I don't know if you can say shit show on your show, but I just did. So they right now they are in a bad place when it comes to being siloed in their marketing and communications groups. And I know firsthand they are, and I know from looking from the outside looking in, because I go and have an experience that is completely uncoordinated, where I'm getting continued emails as a frequent flyer saying one thing, and then I'm getting emails for marketing that say completely another, oh, right? Absolutely. This just happened to me. Yeah. You know, and so that uncoordination, you know, you know, or uh, maybe unranged, as Pip might say, um, sort of coordinated messaging is where you can start to really see it. And, and when I go in, the first thing I'll do is I'll ask, a CFO or the CMO, how much did they spend on content creation in the last year? And that's usually when they'll turn their head at me and look at me like I'm like, you know, a dog, like making a very weird whistling sound or something. And, and but they'll, I'll, and I'll just let it hang there because they'll say, well, content is everything. What do you mean by content? That's everything we do. Right. And I say, yes, it's your communication. How, because if you can tell me how much you're spending, it means that you have some idea of the coordination of it. And if you have no idea how much you're spending on content or, you know, or the communications that you're putting out into the world, it means that it's kind of everybody's job and nobody's strategy. And that's when you can start to see that it's really uncoordinated and nothing but bad things happen. The only question is how bad are the things that are going to happen? Key points. The first one is it could be a question for management or just another prompt to help with our lens, which is usually from the outside looking in as investors. And that is, what are the practices that you have ready to build for change instead of getting great at predicting? And I like how this question puts those two in opposition with one another for this purpose, because that getting great at predicting, as Rob says, can have an organization or a group 
start competing against one another on who has the best prediction, something we know is very hard to do, and suddenly you have fragmented effort and maybe a shift in strategy that was not intended. The second one, the nurse hack. What happened? So what? Now what? And what I love about those three questions is, as Rob was explaining it, it's the important thing is to be able to take an honest look. Take that honest look when change and challenge is happening and practice slowing down the analysis. Otherwise, we all know, you jump to conclusions and grasp at predictions as your go-to strategy, which may not be the best. And the third one, that question that works for any strategy that is starting to seem amorphous, how much did you spend on, and in this example, Rob used content, but it could be, you know, as an example, security, right? So how much did you spend on content? And if you can tell me you have some idea of the coordination and just Rob's just example that we'd be so surprised how organizations can lose a grasp on an effort until everybody gets to spend on it, weakening the overall effectiveness, you know, until it becomes, like he said, everybody's job and nobody's strategy. And the last bit, Rob's reference to Joseph Campbell, is a really beautiful way to think about the work of organizations as well. And I can see how Rob mapped this up with his work in marketing, that make your heartbeat match the heartbeat of the universe. Thanks for listening.